Welcome back to Sleep for Performance Radio, kicking off 2020 with a new episode with Dr. Miriam Judet. Miriam is a circadian rhythm researcher and consultant. She's based in Vancouver, British Columbia, which is in Canada, north of the US. Now, Miriam is from Luxembourg originally, has studied in Europe in places like Germany. She then moved to Vancouver to undertake some postdoctoral research at University of British Columbia and now works um, conducting research at Simon Fraser University at the Department of Psychology as a research associate. In conjunction with this position, Miriam also has a business called Circadian Light Therapy, where she works with companies and groups around shift work, chronotype, and performance. Um, I've known Miriam for um, not too long, actually, about probably about a year, and then this year we met in Vancouver at World Sleep. And we've also been collaborating on a scientific research advisory board for Fatigue Science, um, whose uh, company has wearables and software and so on. And so we've been discussing issues around uh, chronobiology, circadian rhythms, shift work and so on um, in those meetings and then also outside as well. So I really wanted to have Miriam on to talk about this area because we haven't had too many chronobiologists on. Um, so it's a really interesting conversation. Now, Miriam has been quite vocal recently on the Canadian um, well, not the Canadian government, but the, the the people of British Columbia and probably the the government of British Columbia changing from daylight savings onto a permanent daylight savings time. So they wanted the clocks changing. So in this episode, we discuss um, the the health effects of changing clocks throughout the year. So summertime and wintertime, clocks going forward and back. So wherever whatever country you're in, you might have different terminology on this. Um, Miriam speaks about why this is actually bad for our health. We also discuss um, what's best in the future in terms of leaving at one one time or another. Um, we talk about exposure of light at different times of the day in terms of mental health, performance, your basic physiology. We also discuss is it better to sleep at night or during the day for shift workers. And we also digress a little bit here and talk about some of Miriam's work um, as a postdoctoral researcher <clears throat> at the Department of Psychology at the University of British Columbia, where she actually kind of switched out of her shift work area from her PhD and went back into more psychology, looking at uh, the social cognition and social learning in children between the ages of three and six. So a slight digression there in our conversation, but nonetheless, we do come back to circadian rhythms after that brief digression for a few minutes. So this is a very interesting episode. It's something that affects all of us. We're all affected by light. We all see light. We all need light. We are diurnal animals affected by the, the light and dark cycle uh, day to day. So if you uh, are alive and you are upright, this is going to be of interest to you. And if you're a shift worker, this will be of interest to you as well. If you don't like dark winter days, this will be of interest. And if you like bright summer days, this will be of interest. So there's something in here for everybody. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. And um, yeah, we'll see you at the outro. This episode is brought to you by E3, the champion formula. So if you are looking for a nutrition aid for endurance events, you might want to check out E3. E3 is a Perth-based business, and I have personally used E3 whilst running ultramarathons. I've used this on the Ultra Trail Australia 100k race. I've used this during the Leadville 100 miler, and I've also been using it for the last couple of years during long distance swims. Now, for those of you who may have had E3 before, it's back and back with a bang. We have a discount code for you today as well if you would like to avail of this for Sleep for Performance listeners. The discount code is WANS0001. Now this will give you 5% off your one kilo bag of E3. 
three the champion formula this discount or the monies collected from this discount goes straight to the type 1 diabetes family center here in perth western australia you may remember a number of months ago i had beck johnson on from the type 1 diabetes family center so all of the money raised from these discounts goes straight to that center so that's a great organization if you'd like to support them so that's e3 the champion formula now if you want to get your hands on a bag of that e3 you can head over to fuel for sport that's the number four sport like sleep for performance where you can order your bag today and apply that discount code so that's fuelforsport.com.au and the guys over there will sort you out with a couple of bags of this and have it delivered to your home to your office or wherever you hang out during the day and um, if you scroll down there you might want to have a look because i've just found out today that uh, my ugly mug is sitting on the e3 champion formula website so um yeah there you go so check out e3 champion formula and apply that discount code that's w a n s zero 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 one and get your five percent off your one kilo bag today welcome back to sleep for performance radio today i am talking to dr miriam Judea. Is that how you pronounce your name, Miriam? I can pronounce nobody's name on this podcast. <laughs> it's Judah. Judah. Ah. Miriam Judah. Judah. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. Yes. So just as a bit of a background to everybody, I met Miriam for the first time probably back in September when I was in Vancouver for uh, World Sleep, uh, the conference where about three and a half thousand sleep geeks got together. And Miriam was at that conference. And also myself and Miriam have collaborated on some work with uh, Fatigue Science as part of our scientific advisory board. And uh, we spent a day together as well after the conference as well. So you may hear Miriam's accent is slightly different than mine. Uh, Miriam, do you <laughs> want to tell the listeners where you're from? Because you're from a very famous country. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm from Luxembourg. Radio Luxembourg. <laughs> this is like a Radio Luxembourg half a million. <laughs> Sorry, what? I said this is like Radio Luxembourg. Exactly, yeah, yeah, Radio Luxembourg is from Luxembourg, that's right, yeah, it's a very small country, about a half a million, and, uh, and we do speak Luxembourgish, so we have our own language, and that's what my accent is. Luxembourgish, so how, how, do, how do you say yeah. good morning in Luxembourgish? Moyen, Moyen. Moyen. Oh. Well, you can say you can say moyen and you can say bonjour. So you have a choice. One is so, more Germanic and the other one is more French, and that's exactly what Luxembourgish is. It's a mixture between German and French. Ah, gerange. That's what we should call it. A <laughs> <laughs> French freeman. Um, so you, you, you grew up in Luxembourg. Um, obviously, people of our generation and older would remember uh, Radio Luxembourg for that famous radio station in Europe they used to listen to at nighttime. And now the last time we met, Miriam, we discovered that Radio Luxembourg is now online and you can actually just go to a link and listen to Radio Luxembourg. It's no longer oh, pirate all right. radio station. I should, yeah. do, I should do that too. Now, the last time we spoke, Miriam, I was asking you lots of questions about Luxembourg. Have you brushed up on your history? Yeah, please spoke? don't do that again. No. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, the last time we met, I peppered Miriam with loads of questions about the background of Luxembourg. And she was on her laptop going, I don't know. I'm, like, <laughs> I'm working here. Leave me alone. <laughs> 
So, Miriam, um, when you were when you were at school, did you always want to be a sleep scientist or a circadian um, uh, bio biologist, physiologist, or what was the what was the goal? No, I don't think I really had a very specific goal when I was in school or when I was in high school. It's more once I uh, I started going to university and I was really confronted with what are actually my interests. I realized that uh, psychology is something I'm very interested in, and then. Once I started studying psychology, I truly realized that that is exactly where my passion lies. And uh, so it started with psychology, and um, I've always been really drawn to um, biological explanations of behavior. Yeah. So I took courses in like biopsych and um, like cognitive psychology, neuroscience, um, evolutionary psychology. So um, at first, um, I actually specialized in evolutionary psychology, so explaining human behavior from um, like an evolutionary perspective through natural selection, um, and also comparative psychology, so comparing humans to other species. Uh, so that's where it started. And then when... Um, I, uh, I moved to Germany actually for personal reasons to Munich. And uh, so Till Honneberg, who um, uh, is a quite well-known uh, circadian rhythm researcher uh, in Europe, um, he was researching um, like social jet lag and chronotypes. He had just got um, big grants and was looking for uh, PhD students. So I just yeah. came... It was really <laughs> actually kind of like a coincidence. Um, and uh, I went, uh, went for an interview and it went well. And it was a paid position. Uh, so uh, that was interesting to me at the time. And so I did my PhD with him. And then, uh, I mean, right away it sounded interesting to me because it is, uh, again, like explaining behavior from a biological perspective, the sleep-wake cycle. Uh, as humans, we are diurnal. Um, so I, I thought that was very interesting. And then my, my PhD was in interest, like studying shift workers and their sleep-wake cycles and yeah. looking at chronotypes and how do chronotypes deal with working certain shifts and how do we even chronotype shift workers. Um, yeah, that's how I got into sleep research. Although I wouldn't consider myself a sleep researcher. I would consider myself a chronobiologist. Right. Lots of things in there, Mary. I've got lots of questions there for you. So number one, you kind of fell on your feet there by getting involved with uh, Till Honenberg because he would be probably one of the leading scientists in the chronobiology shift work area in the world. His name is plastered over every second paper and you, you, won't, get, you won't get far into the chronobiology research without seeing his name somewhere. So you kind of, uh, you were very lucky to, to walk into his uh, his sphere and uh, study with him, so that's 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 um, that's right. Yeah. That, that was that was re that was a uh, that's obviously uh, an argument that there's no free will. You were just determined to go there. Um, <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but, but when you when you when we talk about this word chronotype, and this is a question I often get as well. What is the difference between a chrono person who is a, a chronobiologist would say, or someone who yeah like looks at chronotypes? What's the difference between a chronobiologist and a sleep researcher? How would you describe that? Yeah, so sleep researchers traditionally, they come from the field of medicine. I think that is, so we have like different parents. They come from different parents. Uh, so sleep research coming from medicine and then chronobiologists coming from biology. So I think that is a starting point uh, that differentiates us. 
Uh, and then a sleep researcher to me <laughs> is somebody who works in a sleep lab and actually studies brain activity during sleep. Uh, so the different brain stages, uh, different sleep stages, sorry, uh, and things like that. Uh, whereas the chronobiologist studies the timing of um, biological events. Uh, so they, um, they're, they're quite different. So um, things like when do we sleep and when are we awake? We don't need to address the different stages of sleep or even the function of sleep, um, but um, more the timing of it. That's, that's, how, that's, how I would, that's how I would say this. Yeah, no, it's interesting because I often get asked, like, you know, myself like oh where's your research interests lie or what's your work like in terms of sleep work and i go well i've done some sleep laboratory work or classic sleep research work where we do polysonography in a lab and we look at sleep stages and we look at this classic sleep architecture and what's going on but then um we've also validated some technology to be used in the field in chrono in we would say the chronobiology field and then probably 80% of my work is field-based where we're looking at things like biomathematical modeling, we're looking at shift work, we're looking at light exposure, we're looking at timing and type of tasks, we're looking at um, risk per hour, we're looking at the rotation of a task, we're looking at the uh, rotation of a shift or a roster, we're looking at travel schedules. And I would say to people like myself, it's probably more classic chronobiology than sleep research. Mm -hmm. under, under, underpin, yeah. underpinned by healthy sleep science. That's how I would describe it. And that's a long way of describing mm -hmm. it. But I'm reluctant to put myself in, in any, in any uh, one camp. But it sounds like from your definition, I'm probably more on the chronobiology side than the sleep mm -hmm. research. I w yeah, I would, I would agree with you on that. Yeah. Mm. So where do I sign up to get this title of chronobiologist? Do I have to get registered? Can you authorize me now, Miriam? <laughs> 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 No. Well, I think you can call yourself a you have a you have a PhD. I think you can call yourself a chronobiologist if that okay. is what you you are, you prefer to be called. I think that's okay. Um, my um, my my wife and other people just call me an idiot sometimes, so that's probably more apt. <laughs> um, so yeah. Anyway, we digress. But um, so the area of chronobiology and, and looking at chronotypes um, is is very popular, particularly in. I would say particularly in Europe and probably North America and in Canada. Um, is, is it that type of research that led you to move to Vancouver or um, did you just want to get colder uh, compared to Europe? You, <laughs> were you looking to go worse? Or why did well, you it's actually the, the climate is milder here than in most places <laughs> where I live in, in Europe. So, <laughs> but it is, it's, we're having a really awful week. It's been raining for like four days and I'm really really questioning why I really wanted to move here in the first place right now. No, but it is a wonderful city. And um, I did move here because uh, um, after my PhD, I got a grant and I could choose where to go, basically. And I chose Vancouver. Uh, the reason I chose Vancouver is because I did my undergraduate studies here. So I studied psychology here after okay. high school. I came, came here and I just really, um, really like Vancouver. And Canada. Really? So, and, and in the meantime, I've become Canadian also. So, uh, <laughs> I call this home. You call it home now. Yeah. Yes, and, I call it home now. It's interesting you say you're having a bad week in Vancouver because here in Western Australia, we've just had a bad week because we've had multiple days over 40 degrees. And, uh, right. It's extremely difficult. Today is probably the first cooler day we've had at 26, 27. And um, 
it's a oh. it's a wel- it's a welcome relief. So there you go. Yeah. Polar up polar opposites happening at the moment. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so so Miriam, you you pushed on with your sort of postdoctoral research. You went to to Vancouver and you went to a university called Simon Fraser University. Is that where you started? Where you are now? Uh, first, actually, I went to UBC uh, oh. and I did uh, different research. Actually, I did research um, on uh, again in, in more in the field of evolutionary psychology, so the evolution of social cognition. Uh, I was interested in. Um, uh, why, um, why we have uh, the ability, we call it the area of mind, why we have the ability to take um, the perspective of other people, which uh, seems to be quite a, a uniquely human ability. And the question is, what are the factors that were, um, that were pushing for that in human evolution? So I studied, uh, yeah, quite something quite different, but I studied... Um, uh, I, I basically went to a lot of daycare centers and I had children play economic games and I looked at one of my theories was there was um, pro-sociality and cooperation, the evolution of cooperation that pushed uh, for um, social cognition. So I had children play economic games and I tested their social cognition uh, to see if there was a link. So it was quite different. But yeah. then after that, I, uh, <laughs> I got interested again in, uh, in uh, researching circadian rhythms more in sleep, and I started circadian light therapy, and that got me um, to meet up with Rolf, and I was very interested in doing lighting intervention studies, because I do feel that there's a lot of knowledge uh, that um, we have acquired in the last 20 years, and uh, in chronobiology that uh, we could start applying, and one of them is improving lighting conditions. So I was very interested in doing research in that area. Mm. So you went from your PhD in the chronobiology sleep world, then you flip back mm-hmm. to classic psychology, we'll say, <laughs> into that psychology field, and then, sl- and then flip back into um, circadian research again. Oh, very interesting. <laughs> that's just, right. <laughs> I have a broad a, interest. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's good. I, I think. I think. <laughs> maybe I needed. Maybe I needed a, a little break after my PhD. <laughs> maybe. Uh, look, I'm I'm a fan of broad interests. As as people who know me, I, uh-huh. I've studied all different types of things, and I get fascinated by different streams. And one of these things here you've actually mentioned it actually is pretty interesting because, um, this 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 thing here between the age of three and six. I'm just going to digress slightly on this for a second, but. You, you play, when you say you played economic games with them, mm-hmm. what did you do? Did you get these kids to sit down and play Monopoly and see if they, they got mad? Is that, is that kind of what no, you No, uh, <laughs> they, they were more like trust games. So the game was, goodness, I hope I remember all the details, but we played with stickers and children really value stickers. So the goal is generally with children that they, they really want stickers and they want to get as many stickers as possible. Uh, and so this game, what they were doing is that they were playing with an opponent, which was one of the research assistants, and they got four stickers, and there were two baskets, and they could distribute the stickers um, as they wanted. They could either put all four into one basket or uh, split them to two or one, three. Um, so it was a child's decision. And then the opponent would take one, would choose one of the baskets for her, and then the child would get the remaining. So the, the smart decision would be to, to do two two because you'd assume the opponent wouldn't um, would take the the basket with four stickers if you distribute them four zero or 
three one that the opponent would take the the, the three stickers, uh, and then we would play multiple rounds like that. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, so uh, so that's like a, tr a classic trust game we call it. So do we trust, and does that change over rounds depending on the decision of the opponent? And um, so one of the factors we were looking at was um, learning. So they saw first somebody else play with that same opponent. So they could kind of see, is the opponent a selfish person or is it a generous person? Um, and they could copy what they were just seeing before. Uh, or they could use their own strategy and try to maximize um, the amount of stickers they would get. Or they could be egalitarian and just always choose to two. Uh, and one of the things I was interested in is how does a child's ability for, to, to take the perspective of somebody else influence their behavior? Um, yeah. Very interesting. I'd like to see that happen maybe with some <laughs> 30 to 40 year olds in the workplace. That might be yeah. very interesting as well. This yeah. is. That's what economists do. They run studies like that with adults. Yeah. <laughs> this is quite interesting because I don't know if you, you have this show in Canada that you've maybe have seen, but there's like a show that was on in the UK and I think it was developed off the back of a PhD student, which is like the secret life of five year olds or six year olds. And they have these kids coming to a daycare center, daycare, daycare center every day and they basically film them at the, at the center and uh, have these. Um, child psychologists actually comment on what's happening in the groups and how the groups are forming and about sharing and uh, mm -hmm. I, I don't know if you've seen that show but they've also made an Australian version of it as well um, oh, okay no I haven't a, now they've run another study as well based upon some work I believe that was happening in the Netherlands now I could be getting this wrong where it actually put kids uh, kindergarten age kids like you know three four five year olds into old folks homes and they found, right, yeah. they found that when they put the kids in with the, into the, like the old folks homes um, or retirement homes, whatever the correct terminology is on them, mm -hmm. um, that the older people basically got, you know, more positive, mental health improved. Yeah. They actually got, they actually got yeah. stronger. They were more mobile. Yeah. Um, so mm -hmm. there's all these like positive effects of uh, as well. So that's why mm -hmm. when you're talking about some of this uh, research with young kids, I'm kind of fascinated with that age group because... Um, you know, it's quite a, quite an interesting time in their development, but also as well, um, quite quite insightful of how that child's going to be when they're older. Now, I don't have kids, but if I talk to nephews or nieces or friends' kids that are that age, you can kind of see the character come out between the age of three and six, and it's really interesting to watch it develop. So, I'm, I'm kind of a bit slightly fascinated with your research here, in terms of um, you know, these these type of subjects, but also as well, how difficult was it to deal with three to six year olds and get them to basically comply with a study? Oh, you know, they love games and they love stickers. So that was no issue at all. Yeah, no, they were very happy playing with us. And I <laughs> so had a team of young students also who were very good interacting with children. No, that was, uh, that was not an issue we had. It was, it's, a, it's a wonderful place to work at by going to daycare uh. center. And kids are very uh, energetic and excited to participate. It was great. <laughs> So I've got one last question before I slip back to, uh, flip back to the sleep part because people will be going, oh my God. Um, why, why do kids love stickers? What is it about a sticker that a child loves? <laughs> it's a really good question. Do you have the I'm answer? I'm not sure. You know? <laughs> it's, it's, we, it's, we know as psychologists that children will always try to choose you know, gas 
like chicken like they, they they they've never like it's very rare that a child would be like no i don't want a sticker so that's why we use it with adults we actually have to use real money to motivate uh you know to, to motivate them to participate in those economic trust games and also for their behavior to be kind of generalizable but um yeah uh i think it's you know owning something it's pretty it's colorful they can stick it anywhere uh, they can show it off. It's a little little material property that they can own. But yeah. yeah, I don't know what it is specifically about stickers. Yeah, well, I've I've got a great nephew. That's I'm old enough to have a great nephew. And when he was about three or four years of age, he said to his mother. His mother said, "She goes, if you don't stop doing that, you're not going to get a sticker." And he just looked at her and yeah. said. He just looked around and went, I don't care if I never get a sticker again in my life. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and that actually made, made her mad, not him. And I thought, he's absolutely played her. And he's only like three or four years of age. And he's oh, no. stickers and putting them on his hands. And, and um, yeah. he'd walk around with stickers on all day and he'd be showing everybody his sticker, just like in a random coffee shop. So I, I'm always interested yeah. in why these kids love stickers. Yeah, yeah. No, I definitely use stickers with my children too, to motivate them, to clean up, to do homework. It's worked so far. But the day they come and they will say, no, I don't want a sticker. I'm going to have to be, get a little bit more creative. Yeah. Well, that's good, Miriam. The next time I see you, I'll bring you a book of stickers. Anyway. Exactly. We're, we're, <laughs> oh, <it's>, yeah. <laughs> we're, we're going to get back onto the topic of sleep because this is not a psychology podcast. Um, I need to start a new podcast called Tangents. Um, but anyway, so... You started up a business in 2016 called Circadian Light Therapy um, at the mm-hmm. end of postdoctoral research you were doing with the, with the kids. Um, why did you start that business and what's the purpose of it? Yeah, so I, pro- I wanted to provide expertise in circadian rhythms and in the use of light specifically to affect circadian rhythms. So um, initially my goal was, um, and, and na- still now, is to... Um, provide services for uh, businesses, uh, but I also do uh, do consulting uh, for individuals as well. So sometimes there's people who uh, want to improve their um, their sleep, or people who have shift workers, for example, or people who have uh, certain sleep issues, uh, especially people who are really night owls. So they can benefit a lot from um, using light at specific times of the day. So, yeah, so that's, uh, that, that's the kind of consultations I do give. And for businesses, I do things like um, assess shift workers' circadian rhythms by means of um, actigraphy to see are they early birds, are they night owls, how long are they sleeping on certain shifts, uh, when uh, am I expecting them to be most fatigued, uh, and then provide um, group, aggregate group data uh, to, um, to management to show them exactly what is going on with their shift worker. So, so Miriam, this is an interesting one because we're actually running a study at the moment with sort of what I would say a classic middle-aged um, amateur athletes, average age being about 39 mm-hmm. and a half, let's just say 40. Many people self-report verbally that there would be um, a morning type. So for people listening, there's a mm-hmm. morning type. There's an intermediate, and then there's an owl, a late chronotype or an even chronotype. So you basically got those three buckets. Mm-hmm. You got the larks, the intermediates, and the owls. Many people say they're morning types. Then when they're assessed with the chronotype questionnaires, that 
Professor Ro- uh, 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 Taylor Ronenberg has yeah. developed or other people have developed, they, they generally come out as being actually moderate morning or actually intermediates. And then their actigraphy, mm-hmm. their actigraphy would suggest, this is the wrist-worn devices, that they're probably more evening-type people. So when you get those type of um, differing perspectives from groups or individuals, how do you use that data, which can be sometimes contradictory, to actually give a true assessment of a chronotype and then to give some good advice to the person as well? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, my research, generally, the actigraphy correlated very well with people's self-reports, I've got to say. So I don't find that these, the, the different measurements are so different. But obviously, uh, you know, when you, uh, there's always the issue when you have to assess yourself, you compare yourself to your family and your friends, and you might be an early bird compared to the rest of your family, but actually compared to the population, you're not. So that might affect it. But generally, I do find that they correlate quite well. So you, you don't find a massive difference between them, no? I don't, no. Not, no, no. not at least on a group level, right? On a group level yeah. when you, uh, of course, you're going to have certain individuals that are just really um, outliers and are not assessing themselves properly. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, you know, actigraphy can be flawed as well. Uh, uh, it's very hard with actigraphy to really, you know, show when a person is, um, you know, not moving versus sleeping. So people might be you know, just watching television and we're think, we think they're sleeping. So there's, there's these issues as well. Yeah. But overall, in the group level, they, they always, in, in all my research, they were always correlating significantly and uh, they were correlating very well. At and least with these... the MCDQ. So, you know, I'm not sure with the morning or evening this questionnaire. It generally doesn't correlate as well to other measures. But the, the MCDQ, the questionnaire that we developed in Munich for day workers and for shift workers correlated significantly with actigraphy and also with melatonin assessments and cortisol assessments. So, Sorry, Maria, um, what, what questionnaire was that, did you say? The, oh, the Munich Chronotype oh, the Munich questionnaire, chronotype, the MCTQ. Yeah. MCTQ, yeah. yeah, yeah. So um, that is using the midpoint of sleep on your free days as... Um, uh, a way to assess your chronotype. And then, Miriam, another question that often gets asked is, which is the best chronotype? Are you better off being a morning-type person or an evening-type person or a lark or an owl? Which is the best or is there a best? Yeah, so I think generally um, what we see nowadays is that we see more health problems with night owls, and it's not because being a night owl is bad for your health but because night owls are just uh, exposed to more circadian disruptions due to work schedules. So um, there's something that we call social jet lag, and it is when you are forced to be up during a time when you're actually not supposed to be up. Uh, So when you, for example, sleep much later uh, on free days than on work days, that is something that we call social jet lag, this discrepancy in your timing of sleep. So we do know that your melatonin rhythms, or cortisol, or body temperature, they correlate much better to your timing of sleep on free days as opposed to the timing of sleep on the work days. So when you are going to work, that is the time you, um, you are misaligned if it is very different from the, the times that you are uh, sleeping on free days. And the social jet lag is correlated to a number of health problems, um, such as fatigue, 
Uh, so if you have to get up at a time when your melatonin is still high and you're still supposed to be sleeping, uh, for another three hours, you're going to be fatigued, even if you had um, sufficient amount of sleep. And, uh, and also, um, in the long run, uh, it is a predictor for cardiovascular disease and diabetes and um, even obesity, some forms of cancer, depression. And then also social chat like is always associated with sleep deprivation. Uh, so when you do sleep out of your ideal you know, time for sleep, then uh, generally you don't sleep very long. And we see that with shift workers. So shift workers, um, they, on, on average, uh, don't get much sleep um, mm. during the day when they come home from the night shift simply because their circadian rhythms are keeping them up. It's very hard sleeping uh, during the day. And then vice versa, in the early morning shift, it's very hard to get enough sleep because um, in order to get your seven, eight hours of sleep, you'd have to go to bed at like 8 p.m., 9 p.m. And that is a time where it's very hard to fall asleep. We call it the wake maintenance zone in, in uh, chronobiology. So yeah. it's one of those times where um, your physiology is just very alert and it's very difficult to fall asleep unless you're very sleep deprived. Uh, so, it's, so most shift workers are just simply not getting enough sleep. Um, if they have to get up at 4 a.m. for an early morning shift or 3 a.m. because they can't fall asleep before 10, 11 p.m. and then they're sleep deprived. Yeah. So, Miriam, you will come across this a lot. And many of our listeners often actually, many of our listeners actually work as shift workers. There's people who listen to this podcast that are oh, okay. know, or fire brigade or, you know, and it might be, you know, training for Ironman as well or maybe doing running events as well. So they want to try and balance shift work with, with their health. So one of the questions that we often get from shift workers is why they, they would perceive that, the, that after night shift, they actually sleep better uh, during the day than they do on nights. And so as in at nighttime. And whilst the actigraphy might show a lot of awakenings during the day and whilst they might have some disturbances, they would self-perceive that sleep is better during the day and that they have kind of, you know, in air, air quotes here, uh, they have virtually flipped their circadian rhythm. Why do you think people um, have this perception? Yeah. And then also, do you yeah. think it's actually true? No, I don't think it's true. Yeah, <laughs> and when you look I. at the, <laughs> and when you do look at the sleep duration, you see it's really, com like, it's extremely short during yeah. the day. Uh, that said, there are a few exceptions. There's people who do sleep um, uh, six, seven hours. But uh, generally, what you see are like four or five hours of sleep um, uh, after a night shift. And, you know, the, the shift worker might feel like they're getting a good sleep because they were so exhausted and sleep deprived. And there was a sleep pressure that was kicking in. So they've been up for a very long time. Uh, and so most likely sleep latency was very short. So they fell asleep very quickly and um, and uh, and um, because they were so exhausted, they probably were sleeping uh, really well. But when you actually look at the sleep duration, it is very short and uh, not sufficient for um, the sleep that we do need. Mm. Now, Miriam, recently in Vancouver, in Canada, you have been um, garnering some fame from being on the TV and the radio and so on, talking about daylight savings, which many people 
have a love-hate relationship with. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and it's across the world. We have the, the, the clocks changing at different times of the year. Um, yep. You made some commentary on it. Before you make some commentary on, on this as well, and let, let the listeners know what, what's going on with Daylight Savings, can you maybe tell us, or do you know, why Daylight Savings exists or why we have it in our society? Why do the clocks jump forward and back? Right. Okay. So um, uh, I'm not an expert in the history of Daylight Savings, <laughs> but I do know I do know that it is not that there's this misconception that it was farmers who insisted on it. Apparently, that's completely wrong. It was never the farmers that pushed um, for daylight saving time. The uh, the purpose was to save energy. Uh, so the idea was that uh, people there would be more daylight after work and uh, and people will use less electric lighting so that was um, really that was the idea and also i heard something about the person who pushed for daylight saving time really loved playing golf and really wanted to have that extra hour of <laughs> to play golf so but you know i'm i'm talking about stories that i have heard i haven't i i've never researched this um, but uh, the daylight saving, um, the, the, the energy efficiency is the official reason for it. And there is also research that has looked at this and has shown that actually we are not even saving energy with, um, with daylight saving time. So there's really no reason we still have that. And we do know that, uh, I mean, first of all, most people really don't like daylight saving time. They don't like switching the clocks. Most of us are affected by it, especially when we're transitioning from standard time to daylight saving time in the spring, uh, it cuts an hour of our sleep. But also what happens uh, and what a lot of people are not aware of is that we now suddenly have to get up a whole hour earlier, physiologically speaking. Uh, and, and the reason for that is because our circadian rhythms are aligned to the light-dark cycle of the sun uh, and not to our social schedules. And what daylight saving time does is that it moves all our social schedules, most importantly, you know, work, the work start time and school start time, a whole hour earlier in relation to the light-dark cycle of the sun. Uh, so now we have to get up earlier. Uh, and in the summer months, uh, most of us, our circadian rhythms are earlier than in the winter months. So we're not as affected by it in the summer. But yeah. when winter comes, and especially if you live um, more north uh, or also east of a time zone, than, uh, sorry, west of a time zone, not east-west of a time zone, uh, you, um, a lot of us are actually misaligned under daylight saving time. Uh, even under standard time, there's a certain misalignment that we see. So we see that uh, within one single time zone, when you look at people's uh, sleep, people who live uh, west of that same time zone are getting less sleep and they have more social jet lag than people who live east of that time zone. And the reason is because um, the sun rises east and there's about an hour difference in uh, the the timing of sunrise. Mm -hmm. And on average, most people get up at 7 a.m. for work during the work week However, people who live west of that time zone are actually getting up a whole hour earlier, physiologically speaking, yeah, than people yeah. who live east of that time zone. And that affects their sleep. They cut sleep by about half, half an hour. 
Um, there's this uh, social jet lag, so you, you expect more fatigue. And then what is really interesting too, research lately has shown that you know, all the negative health outcomes that we see in shift workers and that we've uh, shown um, to be consequences of sleep deprivation and social jet lag, where you see increased rates of these health issues um, in people who live west of a time zone as opposed to people who live east of a time zone. So higher rates of cardiovascular disease and diabetes and uh, depression. Very interesting. I also um, sat in on a presentation by Kenneth Wright, who's at in Boulder. Right. And he presented some data on this as well um, from around North mm-hmm. America and, looked, and, and even from Europe and showed some similar information as well. I think you were presenting in the same session, if memory serves me right. Um, yeah. And it's really interesting to look at that because what Kenneth showed as well was that basically over the year, even with the clocks changing, you're not actually getting more sunlight. In some cases, you actually might be getting more light, less light exposure. Um, and so it's this kind of misnomer that when you change the clocks forward, forward and back and so on, that you're actually yeah. maximizing light. But in some cases, you're actually getting less hours of light exposure across the year. That's right. Um, That's which is, right. Which so I found really fascinating that you might be just getting a big, you know, exposure for like three or four or five months of the year but for the rest of the year you're in a deficit of light exposure so it's not actually helping you um and if mm-hmm. we're so connected to the light dark cycles of the planet why aren't we being mm-hmm. to this so so in general then miriam is it fair to say that um regardless of the location you are in the world that daylight savings or changing your clocks at any time is a bad thing yeah, I, I, okay. yeah, for sure. We should get rid of the time change. But now the, the question is, if we get rid of the time change, on what time should we be? And I think, you know, chronobiologists have pushed for like decades, I think, that we stop the time change. I think it never occurred to anyone that people or the governments would actually choose to go on permanent daylight saving time because it just seems so illogical to us. So when that started, I think a lot of us were really surprised and we're shaking our heads. And, uh, and this is exactly what is happening right now. So we have a lot of governments that are talking uh, to move to permanent daylight saving time. And this is what is happening here in British Columbia. So yeah. um, British Columbia has actually uh, put a poll out uh, earlier this year because they wanted to get people's feedback. And they only provided two options for um, voters. Uh, it was either, uh, you know, continue the time change or the other option was uh, I'm in favor of getting rid of the time change and remain on permanent daylight saving time. So if you don't know any better, of course, you're going to choose the second option to get rid of the time change and remain on permanent daylight saving time. But they did not provide an option for permanent standard time. So oh. they're using this, um, this poll uh, to move <clears throat> forward with this and actually uh, moving forward legislation right now so that um, the province in Canada has um, the option to go on permanent daylight saving time um, on their own. And uh, yeah, so they, they, they went forward with this. And uh, uh, so that's where I started to write open letters, an open letter to the BC government. So I, should, I should mention that I did write to them before, <laughs> but they did not seem very interested in the science and... Um, we're not uh, never consulting with uh, with circadian rhythm specialists or with people who know how yeah. light affects physiology. Uh, so um, when I saw that they were just moving forward, 
um, I, I decided that it's time that I, I write an open letter that is signed not just by me, but by other experts. So I got um, Ralph Misselberger, who's the Sikkim Rhythm Researcher at San Fraser University, and also um, uh, somebody from the other universities, so UBC, the University of British Columbia, from um, the Sleep Clinic, and also the director of the Mood Disorders Clinic uh, in Vancouver, um, and uh, Canadian Association for Economists, and also um, the Canadian Society for Chronobiologists to sign. And, uh, and then decided, uh, well, we sent it off the weekend of the time change, and I decided to let um, the media department of our university know about it, and then it went out to a lot of journalists. And uh, that's where uh, I realized... Uh, how many interviews you can give when you do something like that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you got very, you got very famous very quick in Canada. Um, <laughs> so the the vote as the the vote has happened in in BC. Yeah, so it wasn't really a vote; it was a public poll. Yeah. But it was the most popular public poll that has ever happened in British Columbia. So it was something like two. I think it was two hundred thirty thousand people that responded to this poll. It was huge and uh, it was like 93 percent were in favor of abandoning the time change so 93 percent of people voted for permanent daylight saving time uh, and uh, at this point we don't know how many people would uh, would have voted for standard time and this is uh, one of the big criticisms i have and obviously also if you don't think much about it or if you don't know about this you're not going to think that makes a difference uh, and a lot of people are like the idea of getting more light in the evening because uh, under uh, daylight saving time, especially in the winter months, uh, you know, the sunset is so early here in Vancouver, it is dark. I look, I'm looking outside right now and it is dark and it is 4.30. Yeah. Uh, so um, people are hoping to get an extra hour of light. Uh, they're thinking of, you know, maybe, you know, doing some activities with their children. And, uh, and then I understand that I like long days myself. If I had a choice, I would, <laughs> I would prefer longer days. <laughs> but uh, for our circadian rhythms, this is really not a good idea, especially what it will do is that uh, the sunrise in Vancouver won't happen if we were on permanent daylight saving time in the winter months, so in December. Right now, we wouldn't see the sunrise until 9 a.m. in Vancouver. And in other areas of British Columbia, it wouldn't be until like 10 a.m. So we would have to get up in the pitch dark at 7 a.m., go to work. Sunrise will only happen once we are at work and once children are already at school. So it really, we barely will get any light exposure in the morning. And then uh, on the flip side, we're going to get more light exposure in the evening. And that we know from circadian rhythm research will make it's our circadian clock yeah. drift. Right? Yeah, because we're better off having the bright light exposure early in the morning. For synchronization and, and for better health yeah, and mental health as opposed to late evening um yeah so yeah. yeah so one one for for depression we know that light is much more effective uh, as an antidepressant in the morning than it is uh, at other times of the day but also for our circadian clocks our circadian clock um has a tendency to drift it is uh, on average longer than 24 hours if we are in a bunker so what happens is that when we're not getting enough light exposure, we're all becoming more night owls. And this is something that you can see, uh, even under standard time, you can see um, people um, in Vancouver or 
we've, we've studied this in, in lots of different areas of the world, that desiccating rhythms such as getting later and later and later over the winter, and the reason is because they're getting less uh, light exposure in the morning. So we see that already under standard time, but under daylight saving time, this would um, get just so much worse because we would get even less morning light exposure and we would become even more night owls. And then on top of that, not only are we night owls, but we now have to go to work a whole hour earlier uh, than uh, compared to standard time. So uh, we're expecting that this would cause a lot of social jet lag. Mm. Very interesting. So Miriam, it's okay. You mentioned there about across the year, um, you know, that sleep will change. So a couple of things there on what you said. Um, with the light exposure in the morning, in the summer, is this why people generally feel better in the summer than in the winter because they have more Absolutely. light exposure in the morning? So that's, that's, that's yeah. the reason why. And then also as well, yeah. is, is, it, is, it, is it completely normal to have different sleep duration across the year? So for example, and I'm one of these people, in the summer right now in, in Western Australia, I start waking up between half five and six o'clock. I start kind of opening my eyes. I might drift back, but I'll generally be fully alert by six, 10 past six most days. In the winter, yeah. it could be, if I'm left to my own devices, it could be half seven in the morning. Yeah. And then my, you know, my sleep will change. And I tend to sleep more in the winter than I do in the summer. Mm-hmm. And that's just from mm-hmm. a natural perspective. Like it's not, it's not based upon the clock really as in an alarm clock. But if I was just mm-hmm. to kind of free run, I would probably sleep in excess of eight hours in the winter. And then in the summer, it tends to go back to between seven hours, seven, 20, seven hours, 20 on average. Is that normal for people to do that? Yeah. And it's really important to separate the work days from the free days there. So what we do see is that um, people are becoming later in the winter months, especially in areas where the days are shorter. So the shorter the day, the more that you would observe this effect that people get are getting later in their circadian rhythm, so more night owls. Um, but what happens is that if they have strict work schedules, uh, you, you actually generally see that um, they're not getting enough sleep during the work week, um, during the winter months, they're getting less sleep during the work week than in the summer months. But um, on free days, they're really catching up. So they're sleeping much longer on free days. And overall, you see that um, sleep duration is changing over the, over, there, there are seasonal variations in sleep duration. Uh, so there's a publication that we, uh, we published, like about, when was it, like 2000, maybe 2013, 2012, around there, uh, where we showed those seasonal fluctuations in the mid-sleep, so the timing of sleep, um, and also sleep duration. And it definitely, on work on free days, is definitely, um, definitely increasing the sleep duration mm. in, uh, in, the, in the winter months compared to the summer months. So, Miriam, at the start of this podcast, before we start recording, you said, ooh, 40 minutes is a long time. We've been speaking now for 50 minutes. <laughs> Oh, are you serious? Oh, wow. Yes. Okay. That's, okay. Okay. Good, good. <laughs> I didn't think we, we were. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. That's, you uh... see? You, you, thought we, you thought we wouldn't have anything to talk about, and there we go. Um, so, Miriam, I know, I know it's, it's your afternoon. It's our morning here in, uh, in Western Australia. I want to thank you very much for making yourself available to come on. Um, this is an area that I have a, a great interest in, as you know, from a, my work perspective and research perspective. So I appreciate you sharing your insights on circadian rhythms and chronobiology. It, uh, 
it's very helpful to me as well, and I'm sure many of our listeners will will have an, uh, will enjoy this conversation. So thank you very much for. Uh, well, thank you. Around. Yeah, thank you for having me. Now, Miriam, if people want to get in contact with you to either do some research yeah. projects or they want to get you involved to assess the shift work uh, chronotype of the, the, the sorry the chronotype of yeah. the shift workers or want any advice, how can people get in touch with you? How can people follow you? Are you on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat? All yes. this yeah. So they can get. Uh, so I have a website which is called circadianlighttherapy.com. Uh, and uh, there's an email, I think it's called info at circadianlighttherapy.com, so they can uh, contact me that way. I also have a Facebook site for circadian yep. light therapy, uh, where I, um, I'd say like on a weekly basis, I, uh, I post something, something a little bit more often, sometimes a little bit more often, sometimes a little bit less often, but I do post um, uh, interesting posts, scientific, uh, new science, um, on the topic of the rhythms and especially when it concerns um, use of light. Uh, and then I'm, I'm also on Twitter, although I'm new to Twitter, so I'm not really sure what I'm doing on Twitter, uh, but it is Miriam Truda. Uh, you should be able to find me on Twitter that way. Excellent. All right. Well, the only advice I give to you about Twitter, Miriam, before you go is don't start looking at nighttime because you'll get sucked into a debate with people and there's lots of trolls on Twitter and that will affect your social jet lag and thereby reducing your sleep and thereby affecting your mental health and performance the next day. That's my only advice for you with Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> so don't get sucked into that vortex. Miriam, thank you very much for coming on today. I really appreciate it. Um, so, yeah, we will put all that information for your website, Facebook, Twitter, etc., into the show notes. And, um, yeah, until next time, sleep well. Yeah, you too. Well, you have <laughs> your, your day is only starting. So, it's only starting. Yeah, you have a good, a good day. Our circadian rhythms are very different right now. <laughs> Thanks, Miriam. All right, bye, Ian. Cheers. So... Thanks to uh, Dr. Miriam Judez for her time today on the podcast. Really appreciate that conversation uh, with Miriam, and I hope you got something out of that. Um, Miriam listed off a number of ways you can get in contact with her, um, you know, through her research activities or for through circadian light therapy, her business. We'll put all those links in the show notes below, so you can scroll down there and have a look at those on your podcast app or go to our website, sleep, the number four, performance.com.au, to get all those show notes there as well and more and if you want to contact me it's ian dot sorry ian dunican at sleepforperformance.com.au and if you'd like to get in contact with us to do some uh, some work around this in terms of occupational health and performance sleep and performance work you can contact me at melius consulting m-e-l-i-u-s consulting.com.au so that's ian dot dunican at melius consulting.com.au don't forget to follow us on twitter Instagram, anywhere else you can find us as well online, you're more than welcome. We'll put it there. Jump onto the website to sign up for our one newsletter a month, our one email a month, because we don't spam you, but just one thing a month. And we can send out um, a wrap up of everything that's happened in the, in the previous month if that's um, easier for you to do. Also, as well, if you are enjoying the podcast and you think it's worthy, please head over to iTunes and give us a review there. Or if you have any feedback on the podcast, um, let us know as well. Any types of any subjects you want us to discuss, to dig into, any you'd like us to improve, uh, just let us know. We'll do our best to make that happen. Until next time, sleep well. <laughs>